0: Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: He was a master psychologist who knew exactly what buttons to push with every one of his players. How do you think he would react to TikTok
2: and Twitter now?
1: God, I can only imagine.
2: Game time with Boomer Esiason. This week's guest is best-selling author and The Washington Post two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, David Marinus. <music> Presented by GEICO. Our guest today is a literary lion, although given his University of Wisconsin roots, he might prefer to be called a literary badger. He's been associated with the Washington Post for four decades as a writer and editor, winning a pair of Pulitzer Prizes for his reporting on former President Bill Clinton. He's also written a number of highly acclaimed books about Roberto Clemente and Vince Lombardi. It is my pleasure to welcome the great David Marinus to Game Time. David, welcome.
1: Hey Boomer, thanks so much. You should know that although I'm a Badger and so is my wife, sort of, she actually graduated from Maryland, so she's also a Terp.
2: So she's a Terp, okay, I love her. You grew up in Madison, you were born in Detroit. What
1: was the attraction to sports? Well, um, my attraction to sports came before I ever wrote about it. And it was basically my dad. You know, my father uh, grew up in Brooklyn. He was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Then we moved around and wherever we were, He just loved baseball. And we also, of course, became Packers fans when we got to Madison. Um, It was right when Lombardi got there as well. And so it was the glory years of the Packers. You
2: know, in 1975, you leave Wisconsin and you go to the Trenton Times, AKA the Triple A squad of the Washington Post. How was that? What was that like at the the beginning?
1: That was uh, one of the great experiences of my life. It was like being um, in a graduate school Um, There were a lot of really great young writers there at that time that the Post brought there as sort of their farm club. And uh, many of us got the chance after a couple of years of going up to the Washington Post. So I'll I'll always think really fondly of those. You know, there there are certain points in your life that just seem special in retrospect. And those two years in Trenton were...
2: When you uh, go to write a book, you say, you say this, you have to be obsessed with the topic, so exactly how obsessed do
1: you become when you decide to take on a topic? Well, my wife would tell you that when we're driving down the street um, and I make a wrong turn, she'll say, what chapter are you on? I actually do a lot of writing in my subconscious in my sleep and I'll wake up in the morning and I've figured something out. So once I'm into the subject, it is that uh, mental obsession.
2: Give me your assessment of what you think is happening here in 2020 in regards to the athletes and their, their attempt to try to change the world.
1: Well, I've often said that I don't think that human nature changes, but the culture changes around it. And so I think to some degree, Boomer, it's that the athletes of today have more freedom. They're not as intimidated by the owners, by the press, uh, by any other outside forces. And because, especially, for instance, in the NBA, that's basically a player's league, less so in, in your sport, football. Uh, but even there, athletes are speaking out more because they do have more power. You also have the preponderance of African American athletes, who have the most reason to feel political, given the uh, all they've gone through over the decades.
2: It's all for the better, I think. When he was considering writing a biography of Vince Lombardi back in 1996, our guest David Marinus recalls, I turned to my wife and uttered those immortal loving words, how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? To which she responded, I would have too. (laughs) He also added, but I realized that to do a book on Lombardi, I had to move to Green Bay. I had to experience what it was like in this company town where everything was Packers. And you know, you wrote the book about Vince Lombardi, you moved back to Green Bay. That must've been an interesting winter to say the least. And um, this is what you talk about, immersing yourself
1: into your project. What was that like? Oh, it was a fabulous experience. Um, we found a cottage up literally on Green Bay about 20 miles north of the city, the first week we were there, we both got earaches. It was bitterly cold, and we had to drive through a snowstorm back down to Green Bay to a to a hospital. And all of the doctors' doors had little number fours or number 92s on them. Yeah. You know, my wife, after a couple of weeks, said, D- "You know, Dave, I feel out of uniform," and she had to go to Kohl's and buy a green and gold sweatshirt. Was there anything that you found out about Lombardi
2: that nobody knew that shocked you?
1: I wouldn't say shocked me, but there were many things that I found out about him that that go against the grain of the mythology. You know, he was known inaccurately for the saying, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. He really didn't, you know, of course he was obsessed with winning, but it wasn't the only thing for him. And any of his old players would tell you that He was often much harder on them when they won but played poorly than if they lost and gave their all. But the part that I discovered while researching the book was that phrase was not uttered first by Lombardi, but by a 13-year-old actress in a John Wayne movie who was speaking to Donna Reed (laughs) about a a 'er ne'er-do-well college football team, her the, the the actress the 13 year old's dad was the coach that was John Wayne and he was cheating <laughs> and that's how the whole thing started um, in hollywood um there's another you know another thing i found out which is more of social importance was Vince Lombardi was not just a you know a, in the vanguard of civil rights you know bringing the first african american players to green bay and really looking out for them in ways that Willie Wood and Willie Davis and Dave Robinson all swore by him and said that he was the first coach that really understood and cared for them. But also, way ahead of his time, he was very sensitive on gay rights. Vince Lombardi's brother, Harold, was gay. Whenever there was any sort of mention of, you know, the the normal locker room talk about whatever, um, Lombardi would stop it. And he said if I hear any of you talking about that at any time uh, you're gone which was really extraordinary Mm -hmm. you know even today Boomer that's a very difficult subject for in the macho world of of professional sports and Lombardi was dealing with it uh, you know 50 years ago
2: yeah certainly a man ahead of his time how do you think he would react to uh, say, I don't know, TikTok and Twitter now? Oh,
1: God, well, I can only imagine. You know, there's a scene in my book um, where he's in the hospital dying and he's watching TV. It's a Monday night or something. And Joe Namath is is on there. And Lombardi on his deathbed is saying, you're not bigger than football, Joe Namath. Um, so, you know, he was always so much about team versus the individual, that a lot of the individualism of today might be difficult for him. But another part of the mythology about Lombardi is that he was inflexible. Not at all. You know, Henry Jordan had that famous line, he treats us all alike, like mm-hmm. dogs. It yeah. wasn't true. He was a master psychologist who knew exactly what buttons to push with every one of his players. Two key
2: research techniques behind David Marinus's best-selling books involve talking to as many people as he can and gathering whatever documents he can unearth. Now, these are just two of the reasons why his 2006 book, Clemente, The Passion and Grace of Baseball's Last Hero, is such a powerful read. And you know, David, your book on Roberto Clemente is... Obviously the title says it all. What, what, what is it about Roberto Clemente that made him that way?
1: You know, it's very hard to use the word, attach the word hero to athletes. It's done too often. Um, they can be heroic on the field, but that doesn't make them heroic human beings. For starters with Clemente, he truly died what you would describe as a heroic death, um, trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua after a devastating earthquake there, after he'd heard that the strongman leader of Nicaragua, Anastasio Somoza, was diverting the aid. So Clemente said, if I go, it will get to the people. But it's also the way he lived. He was a very generous, committed person, always open to the poor people, to children. Um, I can't tell you, Boomer, how many You know, regular people I interviewed, whether they were young kids growing up in Pittsburgh or even the guy who was selling, you know, Coca-Cola in the right field stands, (laughs) they all knew Clemente personally, you know. He would deal with people on that level, which is, you know, was a little more common then, very rare today. Um, And so he was beloved in that sense.
2: You know, Um, he he never forgot where he came from, essentially, is what you're saying.
1: Yes, he did not. He had enormous pride um, in Puerto Rico. The seminal moment of his career was the 1971 World Series, yep. um, where uh, the Pirates beat the Orioles in seven games, and Clemente just put the Pirates on his back and carried them throughout that series. It was brilliant in right field and at the plate.
2: I wanted to ask you about this airplane trip that he took to Nicaragua, the, the plane oh. crash in which he died in. Uh, yes. Tell me about the airplane. Tell me about what you found out about that airplane and why it shouldn't have been in the air.
1: Well, that was the most, that was the most difficult part of my research to find the documents that, that told me what happened. You know, I knew that whenever there's a plane crash, there's usually a lawsuit that follows. But when I went to Puerto Rico and looked through the courts there, there was really nothing. There was a an appeal to the Court of Appeals and Federal Court of Appeals in Boston. They didn't have much. And then finally, after interviewing all of the lawyers involved in the case, one of the lawyers said, after about three hours, he said, okay, you're the guy, come with me. He took me to his closet. And there were five cardboard boxes full of depositions and all of the inside information on what really happened in that plane crash. And as it turned out, what happened was, the pilot was without sleep for 27 hours. He already had numerous violations from the Federal Aviation Commission. The owner of the plane bought that plane at a part of Miami International Airport called, uh, fittingly, Cockroach Corner oh boy. Uh, he didn't he didn't even know how to fly the plane he flew it into a ditch trying to get it out of miami um they overloaded the plane when, when clementi was trying to take the aid to nicaragua by more than four thousand pounds oh. there was no flight engineer on the plane so they recruited a mechanic from the deck to come be the flight engineer all of the you know the bad pilot overloaded plane bad airplane horrible owner he didn't have a chance and he didn't you, know it. The plane, you know, crashed shortly after takeoff.
2: You know, David, when you found this information, you must have just been sick to your stomach.
1: It was devastating. Yeah. And even though, you know, you know what's going to happen to write it and then to read it, it still breaks your heart. Cold war propaganda and spies, drugs
2: and sex, money and television, civil rights and the rise of women superstars. Sounds like the perfect ingredients for a potboiler paperback novel. Instead, it's part of the backdrop for David Marinus's book about the birth of the modern sport entitled Rome 1960, the Summer Olympics that stirred the world. Man, I'll tell you, why did
1: you decide to take on this
2: topic, David?
1: I was researching Clemente, right? And what was his first great World Series when he really emerged in the world? It was 1960. So there I was looking through old newspapers in September of 1960, as the Pirates are moving toward the pennant, and I kept seeing these amazing names. Cassius Clay, later Muhammad Ali, um, Wilma Rudolph, Oscar Robertson and Jerry West on the basketball team. So it was fascinating there, but I thought, well, I'm not sure I want to write another sports book yet. And then I started looking deeper into it and discovered all of the ways that those Olympics you know, innocent as they might have seemed, really ushered in the, what we would call the, the modern world. You know, the first doping scandal at the Olympics, um, the first televised Olympics, all of the, the first African-American to carry the American flag, the Cold War, people, you know, leaving the Soviet Union and other places to, to find, uh, uh, to be rescued in Rome of all of it was going on there. You know, it was just so many things uh, that, that allowed me, what I like to do in my books, Boomer, is find a dramatic story, whether it's about sports or not, but especially with sports, and then use that as a way not just to write about sports and try to make sure I get the sports part of it right, but also use it as a way to write about history and sociology. And so that's what that those 18 days in Rome allowed me to do.
2: Yeah, I was just thinking when you turned to your wife and said, "Hun, we we're moving to Rome, did she take take that one a little (laughs) bit better? Boy, you know, Rome, Puerto
1: Rico, um, every story (laughs) since then I've been making it up to her.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. The most interesting political fact of that time was what?
1: Probably that East and West Germany competed as one team (laughs) even (laughs) though they hated each other. You know, it was the depths of the Cold War. It was right before the Berlin Wall went up, and uh, but Avery Brundage, the uh, the president of the IOC, demanded that those two teams compete as one, which they did. And uh, you know the same thing was going on with China and Formosa. Uh, China would not compete in the games because Taiwan, Formosa, was allowed to be there. Um, this was a period before. The South African boycotts. The South yeah. Africans came, and, but they're all um, white, perf- white athletes performing for South Africa, despite apartheid. So there are a lot of different elements going in there. But I would say that what you know, reading about the German, the German team with these athletes who truly despised one another was probably the most interesting political part of it.
2: Quick question for you. Do you still believe in the ideals of the Olympic Games, the movement, everything that goes into it now that it's so, I guess, commercialized?
1: Well, I would say that you can believe in an ideal, but understand that the reality does not come close to meeting that ideal. Right. And it certainly doesn't with the Olympics.
2: I still look forward to it and I hope we oh, get I do it too. Discovery Summer, because I, I do love the stories behind the people, just like you write about. David Marinus fans are eagerly awaiting the release of his upcoming biography of the legendary Native American multi-sport hero Jim Thorpe. Most recently, though, he had turned his immense investigative and narrative skills inward to produce a work entitled A Good American Family, The Red Scare, and My Father. Man, that scares me just reading that and what you found out about your father and how you wrote about it. Give me a little bit of that behind the scenes and how you found out about it.
1: I'll tell you, Boomer, you know, when I was writing about my biographies of other people, essentially I was investigating strangers until they became familiar to me. And so many of them um, had stories that they told about their own lives, which they based on what their parents had told them or what their grandparents had told them, sort of the the common family story. So whether it was Vince Lombardi or Barack Obama, didn't matter, you know, there were a lot of stories that I found out were mythology. And when I write that, I'd have to explain to people, well, look, how many, you know, we all have these stories, but how many of us have a biographer coming back behind them to find out what really happened? Mm. And then I realized, you know, my family had a secret history and I wanted, I, was, I owed it to myself to find out what really happened. My father, Elliot Marinus, who by the time I knew him was a wonderful crusty uh, sort of uh, front page newspaper guy who constantly taught me, Dave, you know, just follow the truth wherever it takes you, don't fall for any rigid ideology. Well, as a young man, he was a radical, attracted to the Communist Party. Um, during the 1930s, when you know the Depression was going on and there was a rise of fascism in Europe, um, he'd learned from that and changed. But in 1952, he was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. We were living in Detroit. He was fired from his job and was blacklisted for five years. And I was just a little kid. I was three years old when it happened. By the time I sort of reached consciousness, I was eight. We were in Madison. We'd been saved. And he had a very successful life from then on. But I had to go back and find Mm -hmm. out what really happened. Um, How did that shape my father, my parents, and me, to some extent, Mm -hmm. Um, that, that, that difficult experience?
2: Thanks, David. Our thanks to David Maraniss for joining us today, and to all of you for watching. I'm Boomer Esiason, and I'll see you again soon, right here on Game Time. David, I could listen to you all day long about Vince Lombardi. I I have like 19 different things to ask, and now we got to get on to Roberto Clemente.
1: (laughs) Wow, that's a good subject.